Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray again. Lord, help us as we come to your word. Grow us spiritually. Help us to see things in the proper light, especially as we talk about the concept of money, that we would treasure you more than our stuff. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before I wanted to be a pastor, I wanted to be a doctor. Now, that's a rather scary thought, isn't it? I enrolled at the University of Alabama as a pre-med student, and my career as a pre-med student came to a quick end in my second semester there. I was taking my second semester of biology for majors, and they told me in lab that I was going to have to be able to identify a hundred different organisms under a microscope. And I said, no, I really, I really don't have to do that. And that ended my time as a pre-med student, and praise God. You know, microscopes are a very helpful and handy thing, uh, aren't they? You know, the lab tech at the hospital can draw your blood, walk to the back and look at it under a microscope, and be able to tell a lot of what's going on with us. How do our red cells look like? Are our white cells as abundant as they need to be? How are our platelets doing? Plasma? Does it look like it's supposed to? There's so many things that we can tell with a microscope. Or if you put skin cells under a microscope, you can see if they are cancerous or not and if they're a real danger to us or if they're healthy. Praise God for microscopes because they help us diagnose problems physically. But what about spiritual issues? We need some kind of other instrument to be able to measure how we're doing spiritually and to see where disease has crept up that we've allowed in our spiritual lives. In his book, Against the Prosperity Gospel, author Costi Hinn, who, by the way, is the nephew of Benny Hinn, Costi Hinn was in that ministry, and then he became a Christian and now has left it and is now an, actually a Christian uh, pastor. He says this, Money is like a microscope magnifying what's really going on inside of us. Money is like a microscope magnifying what really is going on inside of us. You know, money, printed or digital, whether it's in your hands or on your debit card, money's not the issue. Money really is an amoral thing. Rather, money has the unique ability to show the contents of our hearts, to demonstrate what has captivated our lives and what we treasure. 
Well, we can separate our text this morning into three different sections. And we'll spend most of our time on this first section, verses 19 through 21. And, and we're going to use this really to answer the question, which has captivated our hearts more, God or money? Which has captivated our hearts more, God or money? You know, sometimes we're not even aware of the things that have captivated our hearts until we are really far into the situation. I remember in college, as I had friends begin to meet um, girls, that their lives would often be captured or captivated. They would, be, they would have fallen in love even before they were really aware of what was going on. Everybody else knew. Right? They could see it. They, they weren't at the fraternity house when they usually were. Friday nights, they were nowhere to be seen. Their priorities had changed. And then along the way, they found they didn't just like this girl. Man, they loved her. Everybody else had known for a long time. Sometimes we can have a captivation with things and not even be aware of it personally. And I think as Americans, we all share, me included, I would say especially me, we share an unhelpful an unhealthy captivation, love, and affection for money and that which we think it can buy us. Possessions, comfort, significance, security, leisure. But Christ has some pretty stark words here, which basically summarize our entire passage. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which do you treasure more, God or money? What has captivated your heart, my heart? Bigger bank accounts? More stuff? Better vehicles? Bigger houses? A vacation home? A bigger retirement account? A thicker mattress full of Benjamins? Good-looking clothes? The right kind of sneakers? A Beretta instead of a Remington? A Chevy instead of a Ford? Or a Ford instead of a Chevy? Or we all really all know the best, a Toyota. 500 acres instead of 50? That new gaming system? A better computer? A fancy kitchen instead of the functional one you have? A really immaculate lawn or one that you don't have to spend 12 hours a week working on? That new leg set of Legos? The greatest toy ever sold? The latest smartphone. None of these things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves. There are plenty of rich folks in the Bible. There are plenty of rich folks. And they're not sinful because they're rich. The problem comes when our hearts are captivated by wealth, captured. It's kind of like, for our younger folks, we'll understand this, you know, like in Star Wars, uh, where there's a tractor beam of a bad guy ship, and it's captured the small ship, the good guy ship, and there's nothing they can do to get out of it. So often, that's how we are with money, possessions, and, and what we think it can provide for us. That we're locked on to that, and there's not much that can get our attention off of it. What do we value more? What do we treasure more, God or money? God or what money can buy? God or the perceived status that we think that being affluent gives us. And that doesn't have to be, mean hundreds of millions of dollars. It can just mean just a little bit more than what we have now. Do we value God or the false sense of security that a big bank account or a bigger bank account provides for us? For where our treasure is, that is where our heart will be also. 
Has Christ captivated your heart? Has he captured it? Don't you know that he values us? Think about that. The God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, the one who created all things, the the stars and the seas and the dry land and all that is in them, he values you and me. And that was before there were any good works, before there was any spiritual fruit, and those things only come from him in the first place. He valued us and loved us when we had nothing to offer him, when we were his enemies, when we were spiritually dead. And he valued us and he loved us so much that he would step out of the riches of heaven and into a place of poverty so that you and I who were poor might be made spiritually rich. And yet so often our hearts aren't captivated by that, by him and who he is and what he's done for us. Instead, we, we settle for far lesser gods, quote-unquote gods, false gods, idols. In light of all this, Jesus reminds us of the folly of treasuring money and, and its entourage, its, its hangers-on, more than God, by warning us not to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth. Why is that? You know, the fabulously wealthy on TV look like they have it pretty good. Why would it be bad for us to do that? Well, lots of reasons. We're told them here. First, they are prone to decay, right? He tells us here that these treasures on earth are liable to be destroyed by moth and rust and to be destroyed, or excuse me, stolen by thieves. In the days in which a set of clothes was a treasured and valuable possession, in fact, they were handed down from one generation to the next when a moth larvae would eat through uh, uh, some clothes that were stored up. That, that was a major loss. Or the days before WD-40, rim oil and stainless steel, rust could wreak havoc on valuable metal possessions and tools. Tools weren't just expensive, they were also necessary to make money and to make a living, and rust could destroy those things. Or someone could, could break in and steal it. You know, even if you protected what you had and kept it wrapped up in oilcloth, it could still be stolen. It's interesting, the Greek here doesn't actually say break in and steal. It says dig through and steal. Why is that? Because most homes were made of mud. And you could literally uh, claw your way through, dig through a wall, and steal something that had been hidden in a corner for good, safe keeping. You know, the things that we treasure in this world will also rot away, decay and rust. And if we find significance in our stuff, what happens if they're stolen? Is there something in your life that if it was stolen, you would really question whether you could keep going or not? Or not even that, but would completely upset your life beyond what is reasonable? What if it was destroyed in a tornado? Or finally reached the end of their lifespan? You know, fancy new iPhones sure are fun until, well, they're about a year old. And then they're old, and the new one has come out, and the old one is outdated. I've shared this with you before, but in seminary, I pined away for a stainless steel grill. I would lay in bed at night and just dream of flipping burgers, drinking a tasty beverage as Christy rolls up in, uh, in the car after work. And I say, hey, honey, and we have that nice Kodak moment, and, and life is good, and all my problems are gone. Well, that sounds silly, right? Well, of course it is. But I imagine there's something, an analog to that in your life. Well, do you know what happened? We finally got it. We spent much more than we should have. We got this thing. And do you know what happened about a year or two later? 
See, the stainless steel won't rust away, but everything else in that thing will, including the burner and the rack and the tray underneath and all the pipes and whatnot. And we had to get rid of it, lest we die in a burger-flavored fireball. That which I valued had rusted away. You know, and while the money in our bank accounts can't rust because it's all digital now, I wonder if it's even real. We've all seen all too well this year how quickly years of savings can be just wiped out in a day or two of trading. It's foolish to set the treasure of our hearts on money and possessions because guess what? They can be taken away from us tomorrow. They are, by definition, temporary. They are, by definition, temporary. Our souls are eternal, and they will last forever. If we are Christians, we will last forever in heaven. And so why would we do this? Why Do we do well to set our eternal souls on something that will not last, that we will leave behind us, even if it did last until the day we died? That same author I quoted earlier, Costi Hinn, says in his book, You can't take it with you. There will be no U-Haul behind the hearse. I like that. There will be no U-Haul behind the hearse. But there's another kind of decay that afflicts earthly treasures, and that is the decay of satisfaction. How many times have you ever actually been satisfied by that thing that you got, that trip that you went on, whatever it was that you scrimped and saved and set your affections on? Did that really satisfy your soul? perhaps more than a day or two or a very short season? First, life is good, right? Man, I got that new car, and I am fantastic. And then it becomes, well, I just got a new car, or the house, or the kitchen, whatever it is. Then we're on to the newer thing, the bigger truck, the bigger house, the better broker, the better deal, the larger farm, the newer experience, the more exotic trip, the longer vacation, Ecclesiastes 5.10 puts it really where the goats can eat it, like where I need it to be. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Wow, that's really clear, isn't it? Not hard to, uh, to understand that one. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Remember the grill that I thought would com- complete my life? Do you know how many I've bought since then? I think three, four, or five in the 12 years of our marriage. (laughs) It didn't complete my life. It did not satisfy. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can satisfy our souls. So if laying up treasures on earth is folly, is foolish, why do we do it? Why do I do it? Well, for one, we're, we're looking for significance in all the wrong places. If we're Christians, our significance and righteousness and who we are, our very meaning, our very identity is in Christ. Not what we have done, but what he has done for us. And the acceptance that we have before the throne of God because the blood of Christ shed on the cross for our sins. But we often think that we must be affluent or we must have the nicest stuff or just a little bit more than we have now, and then we will finally be somebody. And that's not just in the eyes of others. We do that so often, I want X, Y, and Z, so that others will think highly of me, but I'm convinced the bigger problem is not looking for significance through your possessions in the eyes of others, but rather thinking that I will be important to myself if and when I have X, Y, and Z. Then I will have arrived. I will have accomplished something. 
Do you remember times I heard, I said the word I? Our lives are not to be self-focused, but rather focused on Christ. Well, another reason we do it is because we're looking not just for significance, but also security. We're looking for security. Now, I have a lot of insurance um, instruments in my life. Uh, it's amazing as I think through how many different insurance policies for this, that, and the other I have. But that's why insurance, one of the reasons why insurance exists and how insurance salesmen get you to buy their stuff because they get you to thinking about some eventuality that will probably never, ever, ever happen. And even if it did, you'd probably be okay. And then you think, I've got to have that if I'm going to be secure. Right? Well, we get to thinking about what if I can't do this? What if I can't do that? Now, saving is good. Saving is good, right? We're told in Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, Go to the ant, O sluggard, you who are lazy. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Saving is good, right? There's a difference between saving and hoarding. Saving has a purpose. Hoarding, saving has a purpose and then it'll be used for something and when money is saved, it is later used. It is setting it aside for a future need. Hoarding, however, has as its goal ha being able to deal with any eventuality, all my own, never needing anyone else, especially God. And therefore, you can never have enough. You can never let go. You can never be generous because you've got to get as much as you can lest you ever have a need to depend on anybody especially the creator of the universe who made you and your finances. Another reason, and I think this one's really prevalent right now, is we're looking to distract ourselves from problems in our lives, even with the need to deal with God and to address spiritual brokenness. This is why we're in so much consumer debt in our country. Retail therapy, right? You've heard of this? We go and shop, not because we have a need, at least a need for the clothes, the car, whatever it is. We go because there's a different kind of need. We're trying to distract ourselves. We're trying to numb the pain within. We keep having to buy more and more because the things we bought yesterday, they no longer satisfy. So what should we do? Well, verse 20 tells us, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Well, that sounds great, but what does it mean? I like what one writer, Daniel Doriani, says in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, we lay up treasures in heaven by investing in God's causes and God's people. The effects of such investments last forever. We store treasures in heaven by worshiping God Growing in knowledge and grace and growing in love for God and neighbor. By the way, this text isn't telling us that we can just, we're accruing some bank account in heaven that we'll get when we get to heaven. That's not the, the imagery at all. It is rather making investments in the kingdom of God rather than in our own. It very much means to invest our very lives in the pursuit of the Lord and his kingdom instead of our own agenda, which is our default setting. This includes how we use our, our finances. It does include that. We're about to talk about that very shortly. But it also encapsulates and incorporates and applies to every bit of our lives, our, our hearts, souls, mind, talents, treasures, our time, our priorities, everything that we are. 
But it is also talking about money, right? We're not off the hook here. How we spend our money really says a lot about what we value or who we value. What do our checkbooks and account statements say about what or whom we value? Randy Alcorn writes this. He says, Abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money not to build my kingdom on earth, but, but, but to build his kingdom in heaven. What would happen if we saw our financial resources as ways to advance God's kingdom instead of our own? When we give to missions, ministries, outreaches, churches, we aren't just giving money, we're, we're making investments. Investments in this world are up and down, and we're never guaranteed a return. But in God's kingdom, the expansion of his kingdom is not a bet, because a bet implies risk. And there is no risk when it comes to the expansion of God's kingdom. It will come. It will keep going. Praise God for that. The FDIC does not guarantee spiritual investments. Your sovereign king and God does. When we return God's money to him by investing in ministry, we're guaranteed eternal dividends. Not in the currency of stock distributions, but that of transformed lives, hope-filled families, changed eternal destinies. But wait, you might say, I'm not rich. I'm not either. But in the eyes of the entire world, we all are rich. You know, my little money, you might say, can't do anything. Well, that's just not true. That's just not true. Do you remember the widow's might? How God was glorified by her two itty-bitty small copper coins that she threw in rather than the large amount of money that someone ostentatiously gave to be recognized? In order to have some tangible illustrations, I contacted several missionaries. And I asked them what could be accomplished at two level of giving, two levels of giving. The first, $100, and the second, $20. No, no, in Cape Beale, some of the missionaries in our church supports there with Isaiah 55 Ministries in Mexico among the deaf. He wrote that $100, $100, okay, $100, could provide three months of student sponsorship for a deaf child at school. Three months, $100. Or it could pay the, the one-week salary of a deaf school teacher, or snacks for kids, for a hundred kids at Vacation Bible School. But wait, what if you don't have a hundred dollars? Well, I bet you do, if you really look for it. But what if you only had twenty dollars? God can use that too. What could it do? It could pay for a Zoom account, you know, online stuff, online telecommunication for deaf school for a whole month. It could provide an outreach activity craft bags with snack for a whole week for 90 kids. It could provide vacation Bible school story booklets for 100 kids. It could provide all the water that they need at one of their offices. And it could provide for discipleship materials for Bible study with neighbors. Think about that. Think about the impact that those things could have. Well, Doug and Kelly McNutt, Christy's sister is Kelly, uh, Christy's brother-in-law is Doug, and he's a missionary serving in Africa. They live in the States, but he uh, helps lead an organization that uh, trains pastors in Africa. And this is what he said. He said $100 could buy a small sound system for a new church plant. <laughs> that's awesome. $100, that's all it would take. Do you know what $20 could buy? 
It could buy nutritionally enriched cornmeal to feed a family with five kids. You want to guess how long? I'll let you think. Just a second. For a month. For a whole month. One of my close friends is a campus minister with RUF International, uh, some ministry international students at Auburn. He said this, a lady sent them $100 last week, and you know what they used it to do? They bought hamburgers for the 4th of July and fed six international students, six American students, and, and his family. Those are the kind of things and opportunities where gospel conversations are had. We have an opportunity to make eternal investments and to impact families for generations and souls for eternity. So some diagnostic questions. Where does my mind, I'm not going to say you, where does my mind go when I'm all alone, when I'm in bed? What are the things that I just so, so desperately think I need? Number two is my pursuit of wealth and possessions. Is this pursuit inappropriately inhibiting my worship of God, study of his word, and time with family? Well, Jesus continues in verses 22 to 23. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is a tough text. These are a tough couple verses. What in the world does this mean? Well, let me tell you right now that I'm relying heavily on some commentators, commentaries on this one. The eye and the heart were basically interchangeable in the Old Testament. You think about this, Jesus does this too when he says that he who has eyes to see and ears to hear, what's he talking about? He's not talking about our physical eyes or our physical ears. He's talking about our hearts. The eye is like a lamp for the body because it is through the eye that light is gathered so that we can see where we're going. It sets the direction of our bodies. Spiritually, then, our spiritual eyes or our hearts set the direction of our lives. There's a play on words here, too, as we think about what is the focus of our lives. Because the Greek word translated in the ESV here is healthy. If your eye is healthy, can also be translated as sincere or single-minded. The opposite of that is being double-minded. That is trying to focus on more than one thing. It's like sitting on a fence with, with one foot in one field and one foot in the other. We cannot live focused on God and money at the same time. We can only focus on one thing. And so we have to ask the question, or rather Christ is asking us the question, where is the focus of our lives? Is it on my agenda what I want, my possessions of how I can fill my coffers for my ease and my desires and my pleasures and my leisure, or is it upon the kingdom of God? That's a tough question to answer. Actually, it's probably not tough to answer. I just don't think we like the answer. What would your friends say? Here's the diagnostic question. What would your friends say is the focus of your life? I don't know that I have the guts to ask that question. Our final uh, part of this passage is verse 24, and the question here is, who is our master? Who is our master? Verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
The principal point here is that we will serve someone or something. Someone or something will have mastery over us. The idea of a free agent, you know, like in sports, a free agent, like I can do whatever I want, I'm my own master, that's an illusion spiritually. Notice that he says we can only have one master, not employer. You can have more than one employer. I imagine many of you do. But you can only have one master. Doriani says this in his book. He says, no one can belong to two masters. No slave can be the property of two owners. Who has mastery of our lives? What has mastery over our lives? Whom will we serve? To whom do our lives, hearts, and souls belong to? Well, if we are in Christ, they belong to Christ. We have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We belong, body and soul, every bit of who we are, to the Lord. Which, by the way, is another way of translating this word. Master, curios, master or Lord, appropriate either way. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why then do we pretend as if we should serve someone or something else? There's only one good Lord and master. Money and possessions make very bad masters over us, don't they? They can't do anything for us long term. Jesus reminds us in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? It's not a sin to be wealthy, period. It is a sin to be ruled by wealth or the, or the desire for it. You don't have to be wealthy. It's a sin to be desire, uh, ruled by desire to be wealthy. It's not a sin to have nice things. It is a sin to be ruled by them or the desire for them. We cannot serve God and money. We will serve one or the other. Whom are you serving? And so we struggle. As Christians, we have been redeemed. And we've been set free from the tyranny of greed and covetousness. And yet our wicked hearts, they continue to struggle, don't they? I know mine does. And so we return every day to gaze at our Savior again. There's no hope in me. There's no hope in you. Our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. How do we get to Jesus in this text? How do we end? We end with another look at Jesus and what he has done for his people. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, left the holy and glorious riches of heaven and was born amidst filth, dirt, and smells, taking on a body that could suffer and die, living amongst those who hated him, dying a forsaken death, being raised on the third day, so that we who were spiritually destitute, bound for hell, might be given the riches of salvation in Christ that we might be co-heirs with the very king of the very kingdom of God. He laid aside his riches, took on spiritual and physical poverty, so that we might receive his riches. We can't earn that. It is given. Christ has done it, and now we accept it. Have you accepted that? Your physical riches will not save you. Your pursuit of physical riches will not save you. They will not give you significance. You will try and it will not work. I can guarantee you that. But there is one who can satisfy your soul, who can satisfy your every longing, 
who offers you free pardon of sin and great spiritual riches. Accept Christ that we might be rich together in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our Savior laid aside his riches so that he might make us, we who are poor, that we might be made rich. Oh, Lord, thank you. Help us, Lord, to spend our money well, to use it for your purposes more. Lord, help us not to be consumed with covetousness and greed, that we would just want more and more and more. Instead, that we would desire more and more men, women, boys, and girls to come to a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name that we ask it. Amen.